Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Upper Bowl GM podcast. It is Nick Sararis, and believe it or not, I came up with something to talk about. Like I always say, if I don't feel like I have something worth talking about for an entire episode, I won't produce an episode for that given day. I spent a lot of time on Monday working on a blog, which should be up on Gotham SN for before Tuesday's Ranger game against the Penguins. It's about Jack Eichel, and that's part of what today's episode is about. We're going to talk about why it is so difficult to successfully pull off a superstar trade. And when I say pull off the superstar trade, I mean it in terms of the team that is trading away the superstar. More often than not, as we're going to discuss on today's show, when a team is trading away a bona fide star, it is really hard to get comparable value in a trade back, even if you are getting... A bundle of assets, which isn't the case in a lot of these trades. In some of these trades, it, the return is pretty paltry for people who are bona fide stars with contract and roster control. So it's going to make for an interesting episode. It won't be particularly long, but there are a few historical examples I want to point to. And then I want to talk a little bit about Jack Eichel and what's going on with the Buffalo Sabres and some things we can take away from recent history, even with other teams that are specific to Buffalo but have endured similar types of long-term struggles. But before we get to the topic at hand, I do have to remind everyone to please help out the show. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe. If you're on Apple Podcasts, go to the episode page. Go to our show page. At the bottom of the show page, you should be able to leave a review. There are going to be five clear stars. You're going to want to hit the one that is fifth, from the left, the one furthest to the right, that's leaving a five-star review, and then leave a written review, please. It would be much appreciated if you're on Spotify, Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, any other podcasting platform, please hit the little follow button, help out our little show grow. Every single person counts. Even if the topic for that given day doesn't pique your interest, I promise you, sooner rather than later, we're going to come back around and we're going to have something to talk about that you're going to want to hear. So... Now that I've covered the housekeeping, like I said, Eichel blog will be up Tuesday at some point on Gotham SN. Gonna check in with my editor before I get to bed, make sure it's good to go, there's nothing I need to touch up, be a good, responsible, ethical journalist, make sure all your facts and figures are right, make sure you got all text on all your images so people who are disabled and use screen readers can make out what are in your visuals, all that good stuff that goes into producing good, accessible content. Got to make sure you take care of that as a content creator. So as a little bit of an appetizer before I throw in a nice little drop. When a superstar player is mired in a difficult situation for an extended period of time, it is natural for the public and sometimes the media to speculate about the intentions of a player. That if a long-term period of failure continues said player might request a trade, or the organization may opt to trade them to acquire future assets and to restart either a rebuilding process or a retooling process. And it's important to note here that there are no reports in any any confirmed reports anywhere that Jack Eichel has requested a trade from the Buffalo Sabres. There is one report that I've read from a few different places. It's been sourced. The one I know it by and the one I'm going to quote is Elliot Friedman, who works for Sportsnet up in Canada. 
He said that Eichel was frustrated about the direction of the team last year and wanted to see some tangible progress, that his efforts weren't being wasted. The Sabres went out. They signed Taylor Hall in free agency. They kept Ralph Kruger, the coach, who, by all accounts, Eichel likes. And the Sabres are mired in a seven-game losing streak right now. They haven't won a game in about two and a half, three weeks. They are one of the worst teams in the entire league. They do not score with any consistency. They do not create a ton of scoring chances. And they are not forsaking offense for quality defense because they also have pretty bad expected goals numbers against. They concede an awful large number of scoring chances. Their blue-chip defensive prospect, Rasmus Dahlin, has struggled in this system under Ralph Kruger. Rasmus Ristolainen dealt with a bout of COVID-19, and he's still kind of working himself back into game shape. Brandon Montour, their leader in time on ice per game, is not a number one defenseman. On a good team, Brandon Montour is probably a third pair guy. He could be a second pair guy in a pinch, but by no stretch should he be your leading time on ice guy. And then you got to deal with what you're dealing with in net, where you're dealing with either Olmark or Carter Hutton, and it's just an untenable situation, and it is fueled speculation, especially on talk radio, because let's be honest, trades and free agency are the things that keep sports talk going year-round, and even though the Sabres, for all intents and purposes, aren't really worth talking about from a hockey perspective because they are in dead last in the Eastern Division and have no signs of improvement, you know what gets people listening to the radio is insiders speculating with talk show hosts about what a potential package could look like for a player. With that as your appetizer, I will see you on the other side of the drop. And with that, we'll get to the business of the day. Now, I made a point of referencing that it is often sports talk radio and columnists that fuel this kind of stuff. That it's in their interest for people to be interested in their work, and that is why free agency and trades always get the most engagement. People are interested in that because it is a change. It is news. It is dynamic. It captures people's imagination. Everybody on the planet Earth thinks they can be an armchair general manager based on some time with EA Sports' NHL franchise, uh, cap-friendly, and a couple of patrons. Now, I say that derisively about people who aren't as grounded in reality when, full full admittance, I, I do the same thing. I consume a disgusting amount of hockey media. I read an awful lot of other people's work. I subscribe to a lot of statistical patrons. I read a lot about statistical models. And I'm constantly trying to figure out who's actually good, who's actually bad, and what that tells us about where the game is going going forward. That's the beautiful thing about a lot of hockey's advanced statistics is they're predictive. That based on a long-term sample size, if a player does this over the course of their career, they're likely to maintain this level of performance for the average game and ideal game situation. So we like those in the advanced stats community because... If we know a guy creates a lot of scoring chances and doesn't concede a lot of scoring chances, we know that more likely than not, if that holds up over a long period of time, that is going to result in that player's team scoring more goals than the other team does, and that means that player's team is going to win the game. 
that is your goal. So now that I've kind of set a little bit of the table here as to how people who really put their time and effort into this think about hockey, let's start with this. Part of the fun of the entire armchair GM experience phenomena is the unknown. If you were in that GM, that team president shoes, and you made this decision, what are you trying to do here? Are you trying to win a championship? Are you trying to set up a roster for a long-term period of time with an ample group of prospects? Are you just trying to save your own job and make decisions that you can justify publicly, but when you peel back the curtain, you look under that gold sheen, you realize that eh, that wasn't actually a great move? What's your end goal? And that is why a lot of the time it does seem like, for the most part, people in the public space who give their opinion about this stuff, they overvalue prospects and draft picks and I know it pains me to say that as someone who loves the draft in every single sport the draft is so much fun because it is where people who evaluate talent get to cut their teeth you better believe I've got a little binder and notebook over the years of guys I liked I watched their amateur tape whether that was college for football or basketball whether it was junior hockey or U.S. national development program or it was a European team I always took notes, I read a bunch of scouting reports, and I've always, I got, I got some notes from over the years of guys I thought would be good based on their amateur play, and I keep track of that. I genuinely care about that, and it pains me to say it, but a proven roster player will always be more valuable than a draft selection or a prospect because you know what that roster player is. I'm going to go to a very common reference that most people will know. You can have the boat or the mystery box. What, are you crazy? We'll take the boat. No, 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 not so fast, Lois. A boat's a boat, but the mystery box could be anything. It could even be a boat. You know how much we've wanted one of those. Then let's just... We'll take the box. While painfully simple, the Family Guy allegory about the mystery box is the perfect encapsulation of draft picks and prospects. You know, Pete... Peter's made fun of because he chooses the mystery box, because the mystery box could have a boat in it, even though he could just pick the boat. And in this example, Jack Eichel is the boat. The Buffalo Sabres already have the boat. They know the boat runs well. They know it's safe. They know it's water ready. They know they can have their friends over. They can go take it out on the lake on the weekends. They can go have some beers. They can relax. Other teams are calling up with a mystery box. Sure, that mystery box could have another boat in it, and one of those boats might even be nicer than the boat you already have. But what's the probability of the boat you're getting from someone else that they were willing to give you, mind you? No team is giving away something they feel like is as good as it can possibly be. Occasionally, teams do mess up in their evaluations and guys overexceed where they're projected to be. It does happen from time to time, but Wholesale, teams do not willingly trade prospects they feel have high ceilings because they like the potential of a high ceiling being higher than the asset they're acquiring. The example for that I will give is the trade the New York Rangers made on deadline day during the 2017-2018 season where they sent Ryan McDonough and JT Miller to the Tampa Bay Lightning for Brett Howden, Libor Hayek, 
and draft selections. While at the time, I thought it was a trade made from the right state of mind. The Rangers knew they weren't going to be able to afford to give JT Miller a contract extension, so they traded him. And they traded Ryan McDonough because they felt like he was no longer going to be able to buoy a first pair on a okay team that probably needed a year or two of rebuilding, and that two or three years of Ryan McDonough at that level of production on a rebuilding team wasn't going to make a tangible difference, so they felt they were better suited with the assets they got. But Tampa Bay did not give away any of its blue-chip prospects. They didn't give away Anthony Sorelli. They didn't give away Miguel Sergachev. They, they, I know there were some people on in the Rangers' sphere of public opinion who thought, hey, maybe if we're giving all this up, we might get Braden Point in return. Of course, no, Tampa Bay gave us two prospects who, thus far into their NHL careers, Hayek and Houghton, look pretty unspectacular. In the case of Hayek, pretty much an outright disaster. Howden is not a good NHL player, but the organization has continued to give him chances to get better, and while he may someday turn into something better, uh, he's got to do that. And the Rangers, they uh, they picked the mystery box, and you know what was in the mystery box? Brett Howden and Lever Hayek, and the Tampa Bay Lightning went on to win a Stanley Cup. Yeah, they had to trade JT Miller a year or two into that contract extension they gave him because they needed cap space for other roster moves to go out and make some moves. But, big picture, it is extremely difficult to win the roster player, the the proven roster player for a future assets trade. I'm going to go down my list of trades here. I wrote down a handful. Not all of these players are on the same tier but they're all above average. They all made a decent amount of money or were signed to big contracts when they arrived with the team that traded for them. So the first one on this list, one of the more famous ones, the Boston Bruins send Tyler Sagan, Rich Peverly, and another asset to the Dallas Stars for Riley Smith, Joe Morrow, and Matt Fraser. Of those four players, the Bruins got None of them are still on the Bruins. They let Louis Erickson leave in free agency. They traded Riley Smith to the Florida Panthers as part of a bigger trade for Jimmy Hayes, who was no longer in the league. Joe Morrow never really stuck with Boston, and Matt Fraser has a handful of games at the NHL level. So that trade, full sale, Dallas won big time. Sagan went on to... 520-ish, 24 points, I believe, was the total number of points he's had since he got traded to Boston way back when, after the 2013 season, after the Bruins went to the Stanley Cup final, they lost to the Blackhawks. That summer, the Bruins traded Sagan to try and get more depth for their active roster to further their window of contention, but Boston lost that trade, full stop. Next on the list, I have Rick Nash to the New York Rangers from the Columbus Blue Jackets. The Rangers get Rick Nash, a third-round draft choice, for Brandon Dubinsky, Artem Anisimov, Tim Erickson, and a first-round pick. That first-round pick did not turn into a roster player for the Blue Jackets. Dubinsky ended up retiring this past offseason, long-term there. Never really put up gaudy counting stats, but respected NHL player, Solid depth piece, penalty killer, 
had some offensive upside early in his career with the Rangers, but really never became anything of that with Columbus. Artem Anisimov, the Blue Jackets used in a trade later on, sent him to Chicago as part of a trade for Artemi Panarin. But, again, Rangers definitely win this trade. Not only did they get Rick Nash, the uh, third-round pick the Rangers got in return as part of that trade turned into Pavel Buchnevich. So the Rangers definitely win this trade. Rick Nash always was a little bit overpaid. That contract he was signed to in Columbus was above market value. The Blue Jackets had to pay him a little bit more to get him to stay in Columbus because, you know, Columbus isn't exactly the most desirable of landing spots. So they had to overpay to keep their guy and... He didn't force a trade to New York, but more or less he forced a trade to New York is how it's reported publicly. And Nash was a very solid NHL player for several years with the Rangers. They traded him to Boston at the deadline that same year. The Rangers traded McDonough and JT Miller the week before. I remember because I was visiting my girlfriend at the time when she was still in college and I remember waking up on Sunday morning, seeing the notification on my phone that the Rangers traded Rick Nash to Boston. They got draft choices. Ryan Lindgren was in that package. One of those draft picks was eventually used to acquire Keandre Miller. And the Rangers got two starting NHL defensemen out of that trade. So you can say full stop. And that trade tree is still going on because there are so many active players still in it. Rangers definitely win the Rick Nash trade. Next. Phil Kessel and a prospect to the Pittsburgh Penguins for a draft selection that became Kasperi Kapanen, Mike Harrington, Darren Spalling, a conditional first-round draft choice, and a third-round pick. The Penguins won two Stanley Cups. Phil Kessel played an integral role in winning those Stanley Cups. Kasperi Kapanen got traded as a cap casualty this past offseason by the Maple Leafs back to Pittsburgh. Mike Harrington is a was a Blue Jacket for several years. Spalling... Never really became anything. That first-round draft choice never became anything. That third-round draft choice never became anything. Pittsburgh, definitely your winner. Next on the list, Mark Stone from the Ottawa Senators to the Vegas Golden Knights. In return for Oscar Lindbergh. Yes, former Ranger Oscar Lindbergh, who Vegas selected in the expansion draft. Eric Branstrom, a defensive prospect who was viewed very highly, was a top-10 prospect in all of hockey going into that trade deadline and second round draft choice mark stone signed a long-term extension as soon as he was traded to vegas stone is a consensus top 10 player in the entire sport is driving one of the best lines in all of hockey with him chandler stevenson and riley smith there really is something to see when they are playing if you are not watching the vegas golden knights with regularity you are missing out on high-level hockey at the highest order. It's really impressive what they do, how well they control the puck, how strong their style of play correlates to their play, their players. The players are perfectly situated to play in that system, and they succeed because they are in a perfect situation. Not the only time the Ottawa Senators are on this list. Also traded Eric Carlson to the San Jose Sharks for Chris Tierney, a defensive prospect, Dylan DeMello, who is no longer with the Ottawa Senators, Josh Norris, who is finally starting to get some ground, get his feet under him at the NHL level for Ottawa. 
he's slowly but surely getting in. He's only 20 years old. He's got plenty of time. He might eventually become something. And a 2020 first-round draft choice, which Ottawa just used this past year to select Jake Sanderson from the U.S. National Development Team program. Another guy who will probably take a year or two to just get to the AHL level, and then another year or so. It's conventional wisdom in hockey circles. It takes longer for defensemen to learn how to play at the NHL level just because the requirements are heavier. They ha- they're responsible for more ground. you got to remember that on zone exits and breakouts, they're responsible for a half of the ice each. That ideally, you want to have two defensemen who can cover half of the rink laterally on their own side. If you really want to talk about strategy and breakdown, ideally... Uh, preventing a zone exit, you're going to want to have a forward protecting the other team's blue line. So it's forcing the other player who's carrying the puck or passing the puck out to have to use the side that's closer to the boards. And then you're going to have a defenseman further back that's a little bit more to the right of the player in front of them. And you're effectively trying to corral, cut off the player who has the puck from being able to get the offensive zone. It takes a long time for defensive players to get ready Unless they're freaks of nature, they've got a certain innate athletic ability. The perfect example of that is Keandre Miller, who, you know, a year and, you know, a handful of games before the pandemic stopped the college hockey season last year. And he's acclimated himself well to the NHL because he's got a long reach and he's got really explosive skating where he's able to recover if he makes a mistake and he catches himself out of position. He's able to make it up. So... It's very rare for defensive prospects to catch on really early. So Sanderson will take a little bit of time. Eric Brandstrom, the prospect in that trade, the big, the, the focal point of said trade, he has yet to really catch on. He's playing not a huge role. He's only played 12 NHL games this year in 2021. We'll see. San Jose did not get a ton out of Eric Carlson before the team started to decline. While they had to give Carlson a long-term extension, it's safe to say that the Sharks are effectively out of the mix as Stanley Cup contenders. I mean, the draft pick they traded to Ottawa was the fifth overall pick in this past year's draft, which was obviously not the part of the plan for San Jose. They expected to still be competing for a Stanley Cup with Eric Carlson in his age 30 season, Brent Burns in his age 35 season. It wasn't in the cards. And I commend the Sharks for making that trade. I understood why they made the trade at the time. At the time, Eric Carlson was coming off of an ankle surgery, but he was still a consensus top 10 defenseman on all of the league. And you figure if you have Brent Burns, you have Eric Carlson, you have Logan Couture, you still had Joe Pavelski at the time, you were a bona fide Stanley Cup contender. And it didn't work out. I still respect the trade, it made sense at the time, and even with the benefit of hindsight, it's the right move. You get another roll of the dice in a playoff series, maybe that team goes on and does better things in 2019. They make a deeper run, and they don't they don't hit this wall of age where their key players are starting to decline, and they're still on the hook for big money to a lot of players, including Burns, Eric Carlson, uh, Mark Edward Vlasic. We discussed this a couple weeks ago on the show, and I had my friend Nikki on, who's a Sharks fan, and we talked a lot about this. You make that move to get a top 20 player in the entire sport if you feel like you are capable of winning a Stanley Cup. The Sharks are capable of winning a Stanley Cup with that roster before they acquired Eric Carlson, so only bolstering that roster 
was the right move, and like I've said a few times now, you get that move if you are a team that is close. Next on the list, Artemi Panarin from the Chicago Blackhawks to the Columbus Blue Jackets for Brendan Saad, Anton Forsberg, and a fifth-round draft selection. Of course, a trade did not work out for Chicago. Forsberg did not become their goalie of the future. The Blackhawks had to trade Brandon Saad this past offseason in a salary dump to the Colorado Avalanche. They got Nikita Zadorov in return. Not a particularly high-level defenseman, just, I'd say, slightly below replacement level. He's big. He throws hits. GMs like him because he's got size, that kind of thing. It's a really bad trade. I get why Stan Bowman made the move at the time. He felt like he wanted to recapture some of the magic of the 2015 Blackhawks that won the Stanley Cup, where Saad was a key figure on that team. Didn't work out. Panarin obviously exploded as a play driver, a point getter. Um, every adjective you could say, a game breaker, a game changing force, all of those are true about Panarin. Uh, he got even better once he joined the Rangers this past year, had one of the best even strength seasons of all time, finished third in the MVP voting. Trade did not work out for Chicago. And Columbus got two years out of Panarin at a reasonable below market value price. And he got really good production. They won that first playoff series in franchise history where they upset the Tampa Bay Lightning, who had won the President's Trophy that year. So for a mid-market team like Columbus, you, you'd say they won that trade. Next, I have Max Pacioretty from the Montreal Canadiens to the Vegas Golden Knights in return for Thomas Tatar, Nick Suzuki, and a second-round draft selection. So, I like this trade for both teams. This is a case where it kind of worked for both teams. Tatar had a solid bounce-back season in Montreal last year. He's not as good as he was a number of years ago when he was on the Detroit Red Wings, but he's a serviceable NHL player, quality guy. You can put him in your top six, and he won't totally drown. And the the real prize there was Suzuki Nick Suzuki, who is a pretty talented young center. Montreal's got nice depth going down the middle now, where you're talking about him, him meaning Suzuki, you're talking about Philip Deneau, and then you've got options. Kota Kiemi can possibly play center some of the time, but that's a really nice one, two, three punch down the middle. And it's pretty cheap right now. Two of those three guys are on entry level. Suzuki's having a nice season so far this year. Montreal's underlying numbers are spectacular. They've just had a really hard time scoring on special teams. And they just haven't gotten the goaltending. I know I've said it a lot on the show, but Carey Price has a save percentage below 900. So once he either figures that out or Montreal starts giving Jake Allen a lion's share of the workload, then we can talk about maybe Montreal has other things they can work on. Last but not least, and I saved this trade for last specifically because it involves the Buffalo Sabres. The Buffalo Sabres send Ryan O'Reilly to the St. Louis Blues for Vladimir Sabaka, Patrick Berglund, Tage Thompson, a first-round draft pick, and a second-round draft pick. Of course, the St. Louis Blues won a Stanley Cup in 2019. Ryan O'Reilly was chief member of that team, one of the really strong players, won the Conn Smythe for a playoff most valuable player, 
one of the great performances, a strong two-way play driver, someone who's in the same category as a Sean Couturier or Mark Stone in terms of how they drive possession and they actively suppress the other team's ability to create scoring chances. And Sabotka, Berglund, and Thompson, none of those guys made a significant impact for the Sabres. Thompson is the only one who is still with Buffalo. Both Sabotka and Berglund are playing in European leagues. That first round draft selection was for 2019, the year the Blues won the Stanley Cup. That pick was, of course, 31st overall. They selected Ryan Johnson, a defenseman who's still playing college hockey at the University of Minnesota. Remains to be seen if and when Johnson will be able to make an impact at the NHL level. But this is mostly about understanding just why general managers are so hesitant to trade big-name players and why in the last 10, 15 years, you know, I've only got a list of eight guys here that qualify as bona fide stars that were traded because it is so hard to get reasonable value in exchange for someone who's so good. And it's part of why any potential Eichel trade always gets pushed back on, well, uh, well, you know, if you're Buffalo, why would you do this? Well, the reason you trade a star player like this is one of a few reasons. One, they're an expiring contract and you want to get assets for them instead of letting them walk in free agency. That's not the case with Eichel. He's still under contract for five more years at $10 million per year. He signed an eight-year contract two years ago now. By the end of the season, he'll have five years remaining, $10 million each. He gets a full no-movement clause, but that does not kick in until the 2022-2023 season. So it's not financial. The other reason your player is too frustrated with your current situation and I mentioned O'Reilly a minute ago, and I know I've said this on the show a number of times, referencing the culture in Buffalo, but Ryan O'Reilly, who went on to win a Stanley Cup with the St. Louis Blues, said that playing in Buffalo for so long made him not love the game of hockey anymore, that he didn't enjoy going to work, he didn't enjoy playing. And there is the danger of holding on to a star player in a bad environment for too long. Right now... Even though Jack Eichel's counting numbers aren't amazing, yes, he's 18 points in 21 games, 18 of them, 16 of them are um, assists, he only has three goals, only one of which is at even strength so far this year. His underlying numbers are still terrific, he's really doing a nice job playing defensively for the first time, I won't say for the first time, but really being... a strong two-way pivot playing both ways, yes, part of that is Ralph Kruger's system, but you gotta give... Eichel credit because he's one of the few players who's still got decent underlying numbers, who's creating scoring chances and suppressing scoring chances. But if you leave Eichel in that environment for too long, his level of play may dip. And that is not an indictment of Eichel. He's a human being. If you are constantly showing up to work, you're trying your hardest, you're putting in maximum effort, and everyone around you is just, you know, they're not getting it done. They're leaving you out to dry. They're making you the public face of the team. And you're going to draw an ire of the public frustration that the team isn't winning, it's going to sink in. It's going to hit you. And on the subconscious level, you're not going to be able to play as well as you possibly would if you had better morale, if you were feeling better about yourself in the state of the team. It's why Buffalo might be inclined to trade Eichel. Instead of having a su- overpaid superstar who wastes away his entire career on a team that doesn't make the playoffs, Get something for the guy. Start the process over. There's nothing to lose if you're Buffalo at this point. I mean, the general manager, Kevin Adams, just got there. 
The coach, Ralph Kruger, is probably going to get fired so Kevin Adams can kind of buy himself time, put in a coach he likes as the head coach, that kind of thing, similar to how it is in football, how GM always wants to pick their own coach, that kind of thing. I don't think Eichel gets traded during the season before this upcoming trade deadline. I could see it this summer when teams have a better idea of their financial flexibility. I do think, I wrote this in my blog that's going up on Gotham SN today at some point, I said that the Los Angeles Kings had a better bundle of prospects to potentially trade from because they have depth at a number of positions throughout their prospect pool, throughout their ranks. So trading away from that pool will not significantly set the team back. Whereas the Rangers, a lot of their prospect value is tied up in guys who are already on the NHL roster. We're talking about Alexis Lafreniere, Capococco, Adam Fox, Ryan Lingring, Ke'Andre Miller. The Rangers aren't going to want to trade any of those guys who are already on the team right now, Filipino included. And I know I've seen a number of people in the Rangers sphere of things say that the Rangers shouldn't be willing to trade Heedle because he's so he's still so young, he's still improving. I mean, he's only 21 years old. This is his third full season of NHL play, getting significant playing time. He's got really strong underlying numbers. He's getting better with every passing game. The more he gets to play with quality wingers, the better the results are going to be. If his hand heals a little bit more, his upper body injury where it looked like a collarbone, start taking face-offs again, playing center, which will help. It's really important to have a strong 1-2-3 down the middle. It gives your coach more flexibility in where you're going to start your guys for zone starts, whether you want to give a pair of sheltered work and have them start in the offensive zone. You want to give a pair heavier work because you feel like they're more responsible. You can trust them in the defensive zone, that kind of thing. So the Rangers' assets are largely guys already on the team. And if you're trading away from guys already on the team, you are taking away from what is already on your roster, and then you're creating additional holes. In the blog I wrote, I said... I don't think the Rangers make sense as a trade partner for Buffalo right now because of the way the Rangers roster is constructed. They have too much tied up in just those prospects being their future. And if you're trading away a Filipino, a Vitelli Kratsov, a Nils Lindquist, um, a Keandre Miller even, you're taking away from something you still actively need. Nils Lundqvist looks like he could be a bona fide top four NHL defenseman, top pair defenseman. You go into the next five, ten years with a top four of Lindgren, Fox, Keandre Miller, Nils Lundqvist, that should be pretty damn good. Then you account for Hedl and Kratsov, and if you're able to just keep everything you have in-house, you could be looking at a really, really talented lineup where you could be looking at something like Kreider, Zabinijed, Buchnevich as your first line, Panarin, Strom, Kapokako as your second line, Vitaly Kratsov, Alexis Lafreniere, and Filipino as your third line. They're going to get really favorable zone starts. They're going to have easier matchups because they're going to be going against lower lower quality opponents. And your fourth line, I don't want to say it's just plug and play, but for the most part, teams aren't going to put that much thought into their fourth line, whether it's a combination of Brett Howden, Kevin Rooney, Brendan Lemieux, Paul DiGiuseppe, what have you, Colin Blackwell, who I know has had a decent run thus far this season. 
that's a pretty talented lineup right there. Yes, it's basing a lot on guys being able to get better and to be significant contributors pretty young. I mean, that team's going to be pretty expensive pretty fast. You're going to have to give Adam Fox an extension. You're going to have to give Zabinijad an extension. you got to give Igor Shosturkin an extension. You could run out of cash space pretty quickly, but I understand why some people are hesitant to trade pieces from that bundle of players to get a Jack Eichel because it's only going to create additional holes. But, at the same time, Imagine a power play with Jack Eichel, Artemi Panarin, Adam Fox. That's pretty damn good. And, you know, you still get to park Kreider in front of the net. That's four. And then whoever you want to put at the other bumper. You want to do Capococco? That would be good. I could go for a power play one of that. And then your second power play is good, too. You're looking at something like Keandre Miller. You're looking at... Keto. It really does depend on what you would be sending the other way. If the Rangers were to trade Boot, Heedle, one of Nils Lundqvist, Vitaly Kratsov, and then some draft selections, I wouldn't love it. I do think you would have to probably trade Mika Zabinijad for something else, get some assets in return for him. But I'd probably do it because Eichel has such a high ceiling. I mean, we're talking about someone in the 97th percentile of all players at the NHL level, meaning that he is amongst the elite of the elite. His underlying numbers compare pretty well to Connor McDavid's. Connor McDavid's are slightly better, but Eichel is right there with him, with Nathan McKinnon. And then just Eichel's so good at hockey, man. From an eye test perspective, I know we've seen some pretty ugly Rangers hockey this year. A lot of it is rush-based offense to create odd man rushes to get high danger scoring chances. Someone like Eichel, they'll just keep the puck on the stick their entire time, skate it through the neutral zone, bob and weave through traffic, go around someone, and you got offensive zone possession without having to dump and chase, which is something the Rangers need more of. The only player the Rangers have who's particularly good at that right now is Artemi Panarin, Adding another guy like that on Eichel and being able to put him on a line away from Panarin at even strength will further strengthen your lineup and increase the chances of you being able to create quality, sustainable offense. Like I said, I don't expect the Sabres to trade Eichel until this offseason. That's if they even trade him at all. They might just try and ride this pro- this storm out and say, all we need is a quick, quick tune-up. We get some other pieces in here. We trade Taylor Hall at the deadline. We try and trade Rasmus Ristolainen at the deadline. We give Rasmus Dali in a little bit more run. We let him control the puck a little bit more. We change our style of play to make him more of a focal point. And then suddenly you're talking about two guys with elite traits in Eichel and Dali. And then you straighten out your goaltending. You get a little bit more puck luck. Granted, it's very easy to say the Sabres are bad. They haven't played well. Yes, that is entirely true. It is worth pointing out that NHL teams are used to playing in an 82-game season, and a seven-game losing streak in an 82-game season is over the course of two weeks. In this compressed season, that's the be- that's like nine days. That's like 12 days, where you're playing pretty much a game every day or every other day, and you don't have time to work yourself out of these ruts, these poor stretches, because you're exhausted. You're going through the motions because you know you have to play in a hockey game, but your body is tired, you're not physically recovering, your team's not playing particularly well, your motivation to get going, it's not, it's hard to get going when you're on a team that's not playing well. It, I would like to see more from 
I'd like to see more from Buffalo just because I like so many of the guys on that team. I like Eichel. I like Sam Reinhart. I like Dylan Cousins. I like Rasmus Dahlin. I like Taylor Hall. I like all those guys. I don't want to see them struggle like this. It's frustrating as a hockey fan when you see star players struggling because you know they can do better, and you got to imagine it's draining on them. So now that I've kind of inundated you with my Jack Eichel theories, my Jack Eichel threads, my thoughts, I'm going to get everyone out of here. Not sure what the Wednesday episode of the show will entail. I do know that Chris Schweitzer will begin a weekly occurrence to discuss baseball things later this week. I'm not sure if he's going to appear on Thursday or Friday's episode yet. Got to iron that out with him. But big picture, Chris Schweitzer will be here often to talk about Major League Baseball. Chris is one of the most insightful baseball fans I know. Puts a lot of hard work into his show, The Sports Report with Christopher Schweitzer, which is also a podcast on all major podcasting platforms. It's live on HudsonRiverRadio.com every Wednesday at 7 o'clock. He does an hour. The app, it's free. You can live stream it, follow along. It's a good show. Chris does a really nice job with it. I'm really happy he gets to do that show every week because I know how much it means to him. So we're going to have a good time talking baseball for much of the season this year. So I will see you guys tomorrow, and then later on in the week, Chris will be joining us, and we're going to have a fun time. I'll see you guys.